All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman and this is ATOS, your Bounty Hunters versus Ghosts speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. And I am back this time with another bonus episode, another episode commissioned by one of our very generous Patreon supporters. And we're going to be talking about the Brandon Sanderson novella, Shadows for Silence in the Forests of Hell. This was published in 2013 in the anthology Dangerous Women. This was put together by Gardner Dozois and George R.R. R. Martin, pretty big names in fantasy uh, writing and publishing. And I am joined today on this episode by Brandon Buddha. Brandon, as I'm sure you're all used to hearing by now, Brandon is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Brandon, welcome back to ATOS. Well, thanks for having me back. It's uh, it's good to talk to you again for the first time uh, <laughs> in a, since the last time I was on ATOS. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I, we talk all the time and or do lots of other podcasts, but I'm really excited to talk about Brandon Sanderson with you today. Uh, you know, and we're, we're I'm here because this episode was a commission. So thanks, uh, thanks for commissioning an episode where I get to talk to Glenn about Brandon Sanderson, who I think otherwise we probably would not cover on any of our other shows. Yeah, I mean, I really, really, really thank you for this commission. I literally started this show. You know, this is like the, I don't know, sixth or seventh show we do on the network. We do a lot of shows. I've lost track of how many there are. This is the most recent one that we've started. And I started this one really so that someone would commission me to do a Brandon Sanderson episode at some point. <laughs> I wanted to read Brandon Sanderson and I wanted to read N.K. Jemison. right? I just sort of felt like I didn't really know what was going on in fantasy and science fiction in the last 10 or 15 years. And I wanted to start a show where I could read those. And finally, years into this project, it has happened. So I'm really grateful for that. So let's talk about the the plan here for this episode. Uh, this will be longer than a 20 or 30 minute episode here. Since there are two of us, we're going to do things a little bit differently, even though it's you know only a 50 page novella here. But we're going to talk about the, the setting, the characters and the, the plot. Uh, we're then also going to talk about the themes and the motifs that Sanderson is working with here. We're going to spend probably a lot of time really on writing craft. We, we really do like to dissect these novels with our own writer hats on. And we'll finish up by just giving an assessment of the of the story. We'll talk some strengths and some uh, some weaknesses. So as I said, I was really excited to get this commission because I have been wanting to read Brandon Sanderson because right, he's the biggest name in contemporary fantasy. He absolutely has to be the most prolific fantasy writer of all time. But of course, right, Brandon, you are here because you have a lot more experience with Brandon Sanderson than I do. So before we get into this, what is your history with Sanderson's books? Well, first of all, I just have to say, for those who don't know, uh, that I am more inclined to read books published after 1950 than you are, Glenn. <laughs> and uh, I, I occasionally attempt to keep up with with big trends in the different uh, genres of fiction that are published. And uh, so, yeah, probably about a decade ago, I picked up Mistborn. That was my first Brandon Sanderson book. So I read the Mistborn trilogy a while ago. And uh, kind of said, I did my due diligence. I read Brandon Sanderson. I got a taste of what he's up to as a writer, uh, you know, of what's selling, of what's popular. 
Um, but I, you know, I had to go back. I had to get more tastes. But I, I remember uh, I was in a bookstore when The Way of Kings came out and it had colored maps uh, on the inside cover. And I bought that book on on the strength of the colored maps. And then I made you read it. So that, right. that's my relationship with Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> right. You you showed me that book when you had it in, in your apartment in, in Fishtown. And that's really was the thing you wanted to show me was the colored maps. And they were really cool. And I think we read out loud to each other, like the first four pages of the, of the book. But then I did not read it actually till literally like three or four years later when I was uh, living in a tent in national parks for a summer. And uh, I needed a really massive book, right? I was just traveling and uh, uh, didn't want to bring many books with me. I mean, I already had a suitcase of books. I was working on my PhD dissertation as well. So I just wanted one really big book and I did finally read Way of Kings and really enjoyed it, but then have not gone back to the Sanderson well until this moment. And I will, you know, reveal right here and right now that I really love this story. So I'm, 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 I want to go back. I want to do some more, some more Brandon Sanderson in the future, if we can find a way, uh, find a way to do that. But let's zero in on this story here. We're going to start by talking about the the world and the, the setting of this story. And one thing we should really be clear about before we even get into this is that uh, we, we are both aware that Brandon Sanderson, all of his like massive corpus takes place in one shared universe uh, called the Cosmere. We're aware of that. I actually don't know if there are other stories that share this setting or or if this is a a local setting and a sort of a part of a bigger world. But even if we did know that, we would pretend not to know that because we want to take this story on its own terms here. Yeah, I did look this up because I, I had a question about it as well. And this is the only story on this, you know, planet in the Cosmere. And even if it's on this planet in the Cosmere, uh, this is the only story in this continent or setting of that planet as well. So uh, there was kind of a lot of retconning done to fit this into the Cosmere after the fact. So this really is a standalone story, even with all of the mythos and lore surrounding the Cosmere. All right. Well, then we didn't even actually need my my caveat there. It was really just to, <laughs> just to prevent a lot of a lot of angry emails from hardcore Sanderson fans. But though we will look forward to talking to, to Sanderson fans about this story. Uh, that's, a, that, that's something that actually really interests me about doing this. So let's start by talking about the the places and the institutions and the the, the history here in this uh, in this setting. Uh, to be clear, right, this story is set in a secondary world. It's a world other than our own, and it is essentially analogous to early modernity uh, in terms of technology. And there are even some some parallels in the background as well. I'll, I'll point those out. Our story takes place in a land that has only recently been settled or colonized by people. Uh, it is uh, across the ocean from what the people here call the homeland. And these people left the homeland because of something that they call the evil. Uh, all of these are proper nouns. Uh, the evil destroyed life there. That seems to have been somewhere in the range of three to five generations ago, though that's that's not ever explicit in the text. So essentially what we've got here is a fantasy version of an England ravaged by the Black Death that is coinciding with the colonization of a New England in North America. And the names of the characters and the places are overwhelmingly English. And, and that really reinforces this subconscious feeling. It actually does a lot of the world building work, which is very well done. Though, you know, I just want to be clear. I don't actually think that the evil was like an especially virulent strain of bacteria. I suspect it was something, you know, far more fantastical than that. But that's the sort of historical analogy that Sanderson is clearly uh, drawing on in building this world here. 
So at any rate, people have moved to this new land and they have built fortified cities. But these fortified cities are seemingly islands among the forest, also capitalized, proper noun. The forest is, is not a nice place to live, and, and mostly because of the ghosts, or shades, as they are called in this story. I'm going to talk about the rules of ghosts in this story in just a, a minute. But here, what we need to know is that the forest is inhabited by people, people who have come here from the homeland, or descendants of people who have come here from the homeland. But it is a rough place. And so Mostly, it's outlaws of various kinds just trying to survive and eke out a living and also, you know, trying to not get killed by ghosts. But some of the people in the forest have done something that is worth sending bounty hunters after them to kill them. And that is going to set up the plot, that information. So ghosts, we need to talk about ghosts here, right? The forest is lousy with ghosts. And these shades are very clearly the ghosts of people who have died, or at least some of them are. They may not all be, but at least some of them are. And they love to consume people. They sort of suck the life force out of them or you know something like that. But they are only active at night and, and they often don't notice people, uh, at least if you're careful. But if there's blood, they're going to go into a serious business shark frenzy, essentially. And the rule that our main character lives by is, if the shades have green eyes, you hide from them. But if the shades have red eyes, you run. And silver, the, the metal silver, is something of a, a weapon against the shades. They don't like it. You can destroy them with a, a silver blade or like a crossbow bolt. Uh, you can line a shelter with silver to keep them out. And silver powder can reduce the, the damage that they do to your, your body here. And so this brings us to the immediate location where our story is going to begin. And then we're going to talk about the, the, the characters. And this immediate location is an inn in the forest that is entirely covered in silver to keep out the ghosts. And so, yeah, now we can go meet our principal characters. And let's start with the, the woman who owns and operates this inn, Brandon. Yeah, her name is Silence, uh, and she is the protagonist of the piece. She's the woman, it turns out, behind the myth of the white fox, a notorious bounty hunter active in the forest or the forests of hell. She owns this inn, as you said. It's a way stop. It's just called the way stop by a lot of people. And it's an inn slash tavern slash generic D&D setting. <laughs> and since outlaws tend to stop in there or sometimes sleep overnight uh, in their, on their way through the forest or as they're getting to some kind of place they've set up in the forest, she identifies them from the big book of uh, bounties and then hunts them down. She was brought up in the trade of bounty hunting by her grandmother, and this is really a, a mixed blessing, or maybe it's really more of a curse, because this is how she actually stays in business. Running an inn is expensive, and since she needs to run the inn as a cover for her secret identity, she's got to keep it up and keep the whole business in good shape. And this includes very expensive silver barriers that are around the inn that keep out the ghosts. And basically, she pays for everything by killing criminals or, or going into debt a little bit. At a certain point in her past, she got pregnant, and she definitely got pregnant out of wet, wedlock. Though at what age, it's really hard to say. Maybe it was in her 20s. I don't know. It's hard to tell what Brandon Sanderson thinks is edgy, uh, but clearly there's meant to be some edginess <laughs> here around this. And her husband died at some point. Again, something we don't know. We should also say that her mother and father are dead as well. She is an atheist or at least a non-practicing agnostic in the major religion, which has to do with worshiping 
what she calls and what everybody calls the God beyond, not simply God. And part of her tactics then in capturing bounties, though that then is not related to any prior clause, I said, (laughs) uh, part of her tactics in capturing bounties and killing them involves, you know, dosing beer with sleepy herbs and then using special bioluminescent uh, plants in order to track the people down and, and follow them into the woods. Right now, as we meet her, she is in trouble because the person who she splits her bounty with, you know, in order to turn in the bounties and maintain her cover and things like that, is giving her a really hard time, uh, which I'll talk about when I talk about that character in a bit. She's great with knives. She knows all the ghost and silver lore thanks to her upbringing with her grandmother. And she's just out in the forest trying to be free because that's something she values. Something about living in the fortified cities, as you said, Glenn, she sees it as a restriction on her freedom. And maybe some of the choices that she's made require her not to be under the laws of these fortified cities. So this is the only place she can truly be free and not have her daughters end up in a worse situation uh, than they're in. Again, because apparently the towns and cities in this world are full of rough people. They're at least in Silence's opinion, worse than living in the way stop in a haunted forest surrounded by criminals. I'm not convinced by the politics of this story, but that's certainly <laughs> Silence's point of view. Well, we may be taking up the politics of, of this story when we get to the, the <laughs> themes and motifs. I really liked the way that you presented the sort of twin things that Silence does here, right? One, she's this bounty hunter. That's the sort of business, but then she runs the inn as well. Really, the way you presented that felt like you were you were talking about a, a superhero setup here, right? Sort of a, a cross between, well, I don't know. She's basically like the the Green Arrow uh, on the the CW, you know, Arrowverse show. Arrow uh, is really kind of how that sounded when you were presenting it, but. In those types of situations, right, it's being the hero, being the bounty hunter is like the thing that you do. But then you, you know, you run this in to give you uh, a cover. Uh, also, you know, someplace where you can do some money laundering and also just like a base where you can have like your cool training facilities and keep your weapons and stuff. But really, the opposite is true here, right? She just wants to run this in. She just wants to brew beer and like bring it to people, cook dinners, have this uh, this fortified place here in the in the forest. But she actually has to go do all of this bounty hunting in order to to keep it up because it's totally an unprofitable business. She just would, would have to charge like, I don't know, quintuple for you know a pint of beer and she can't do that. And that's uh, so it's a really interesting way to invert the sort of superhero uh, expectations here. It's no mistake that I described it that way. Brandon Sanderson does have a, a YA series that are about superheroes. Uh, when we talk about strengths and weaknesses, when we get a little deeper into the conversation, uh, I think Sanderson is really caught up with the kind of superficial modes of storytelling that you find in video games or comic books and things like that. And he, he's it's certainly present in this story as well. Whether or not Silence is actually able to not hunt bounties is maybe a question we can take (laughs) up later. Um, But yeah, she certainly is doing it, even though it gets her into a lot of trouble with rougher sorts than she wants, than maybe the bounties she's collecting. Her dream, though, is, yes, just to run it in and have a quiet 
life in this way stop. Right. Because as you said, Brandon, she has these these two daughters. I'm going to talk about them a little bit here. The two daughters are William Ann, who's her, her biological daughter, and then Sabruki, who's adopted. Uh, William Ann is a teenager. She's really on the cusp of uh, adulthood here. She's named for her father, who is, is not in the picture. We don't really know what all the circumstances of that were, as you said, Brandon. But we do know that Silence's pregnancy was appointed of contention between her and her grandmother. And William Ann is really precious to her. And of course, right, Silence still regards her as a child, but William Ann wants to be taken seriously as an adult. She wants to be included in the adult world. And for her, what that means is to be included in the not just the operation of the inn, but the bounty hunting business as well. And that's going to be uh, really part of the catalyst for for the plot getting going here. But Sabruki is is younger than William Ann, perhaps 10 years younger, eight years younger or, or so. She's eight. And her family was killed by a criminal. We're going to meet him in the, the plot recap that we'll get to in just a little bit. And Silence has adopted her and also promised to kill the man who did this to her family. And Sabruki is really scarred by what happened to her and doesn't really play the way that, you know, eight-year-olds ought to play, but she's obsessed with cleaning, which is, I think, a really great uh, character touch there, a way to sort of show her her trauma in in action. Uh, William Ann is going to matter to the plot, as I said, but Sabruki really is not. She is maybe here as kind of an afterthought, I think, because her backstory is necessary for providing the moral justification for the pretty grim killing that Silence and William Ann are going to carry out, a killing that is actually otherwise really unsettling and would definitely make them the villain of a, of a story. And uh, we can talk about that a little bit more when we get into craft as well. Yeah, Sabruki is kind of the kid you bring in in the seventh season of a sitcom to revitalize <laughs> it on some level. <laughs> That's kind of how she's handled here. You know, the cute kid uh, who, as you said, Glenn, I think, and rightly so, uh, provides the moral justification for uh, the vengeance killing that William Ann and Silence get up to. But, you know, I don't want to I don't want to focus on kind of how Brandon Sanderson handles edginess and things like that in this story. This isn't a collection called Dangerous Women, as we said. Um, and so, yeah, rape is brought up here in regard to Spruki's mother, I think. And the criminal that they're going after is a real sociopath. Uh, though, again, that's not something that I think quite fits into this world or the way people operate in this society. Still, it's it's a major part of how this story functions mechanically. And thinking about how the story functions mechanically, although we we get a lot of information about this villain. We're going to get more when we do the plot recap here in just a, a bit. But that character turns out not actually to be the villain of this story. The, the villain of the story is someone else entirely. Right. The villain of this story is a man named Theopolis, and he's one of the two main antagonists of the story. He's the main ant antagonist. Uh, he's a tax collector, and he's the one who is the White Fox's partner. He takes the bodies of the uh, people that she kills, the bounties that she collects, and then he gives her 50% of the bounty and keeps the other half. Maybe Theopolis is a merchant too. Uh, he seems to be selling a lot of things to silence on credit, but he's gotten a little greedy over their business dealings over time. 
for some reason, he's got a lot more money from these bounty deals and tax collection and, and merchant businesses. He's also maybe politically connected. Uh, and so he really keeps silence in debt that he's kind of got her in a cycle of debt slavery, essentially, uh, in order for her to be able to continue to run the inn and buy silver and supplies. And the inn, it turns out, is losing money. Theopolis is also a coward. There's a kind of a throwaway sentence here where we do learn that he did kill somebody at some point, but only because that person couldn't fight back. So cowardice is, is a trait of his. He's much more comfortable organizing things behind the scenes than getting his hands dirty. Uh, the the main kind of obstacle for silence in this story is brought to her attention by Theopolis as he holds this debt over her and says, I can make this all go away if you give me the deed to the inn and then you can keep working here and doing all of your bounty hunting and I'll just, you know, be the owner in name. But silence knows that he's just going to put her more and more into debt and she'll never get out from under him. So he's turning the screws to silence uh, pretty heavily in this story. And one thing that he does do that really displays his villainy is betray her to some bounty hunters uh, and then nearly gets her killed, and then he lies about it. And then when he lies about it in the final confrontation of the story, he says, prove it to silence as though she actually needs to, like they're on trial or something. Uh, and then she does. So all around, Theopolis is a really bad dude, and he gets his uh, comeuppance at the end of the story. Yeah, I love the way that you describe him, Brandon, the cowardice, right? It is just this one line that we get there, but it it done it does then inform everything that we think about him. And and really, uh, it was impossible for me to not think of Theopolis as Littlefinger, at least as Littlefinger is portrayed on screen in in Game of Thrones. Yeah, he's exactly that kind of smarmy businessman who is uh comfortable making deals in the background, but then very quickly finds he's out of, out of his depth and, and maybe the consequences of what he does are not things he wants to face. Yeah. So the the plot of the story then is really born out of the intersection of, of two inciting incidents. And the first is that silence needs money. She needs it now, right? So that she can prevent Theopolis from seizing her in and uh, becoming under his thumb even more than she already is. And then the second incident is that the most lucrative fugitive has just walked into her bar. This is a man named Chesterton. Uh, presumably this is not GK Chesterton, but to be fair, we don't really get any confirmation either way. So maybe it is. I don't know. But <laughs> in any case, this is the dude who killed Sabruki's family. Uh, Silence is going to do her usual thing here as the White Fox. And she has William Ann put some kind of, you know, sleeping drug in the food of Chesterton and his company so that, yeah, they'll be extra asleep when she sneaks into their camp tonight. And William Ann is going to go with her, too. This is unusual, but William Ann insists on being brought into this part of the business. And we know immediately, right, that that is not going to work out well. And it doesn't. Uh, Silence and William Ann succeed in killing Chesterton and his company while they sleep. Uh, it's not really very difficult. That clearly is not the obstacle of the story. Uh, it is pretty gruesome, though, I will say. But Sanderson has worked out here how you would go about killing these people without spilling blood where the, the shades can see it. But the actual obstacle for the story here arrives in the form of some other bounty hunters who have also been tracking Chesterton. And there are more of them. And so Silence gives up Chesterton's body here. 
but not really. Uh, she and William Ann run through the forest while these other bounty hunters take the road. And so the two of them get ahead of these other people and they set a trap. And that works great until, you know, suddenly it doesn't work great anymore. And the lead bounty hunter takes William Ann hostage in order to get the body of Chesterton back. Uh, the rules are here, right? Without the body, there's uh, no bounty. But then from out of nowhere, someone else shoots him with a crossbow. And, and this also causes him to cut William Ann with his knife. And so and now there are shades everywhere. And Silence's priority is not getting to the body of Chesterton. It's saving William Ann. It's saving her daughter. There are some immediate tactical obstacles about not having silver and that sort of thing, but Silence overcomes those, and she does save William Anne from, from death, but not before she's been pretty badly hurt by the, the shades. They're going to have to amputate one of her hands for sure, maybe also a leg, and half her body, and this includes part of her face, is going to look slightly necrotic for the rest of her life, which is going to significantly change the way that people treat her. So even though William Ann is not dead, this has not been a good outcome for her. Her life is going to be changed because of this, uh, this incident. But there is still the matter of Theopolis to wrap up here. Silence has already figured out that Theopolis is the one who sent these other bounty hunters after them, and that he's also the one who shot the bounty hunter from you know, some hiding spot in the, the forest. But now Theopolis shows up at the inn. He comes into the, the working area of the inn. And mostly he's here to gloat about how, you know, the inn is going to be his now because Silence didn't get the body and therefore isn't getting the bounty and can't pay him off, can't pay Theopolis off. Except, look, the inn is not going to be Theopolis's because Theopolis foolishly cuts himself here. He thinks that the inn is safe from shades just because, you know, it's covered in silver. What he doesn't know is that Silence actually keeps a shade in the closet for exactly this type of situation, and it's the shade of her grandmother who raised her, and now that shade consumes Theopolis's life and then goes back into the closet. And that's the end of the, the plot. There, there is some wrap-up here about how Silence manages to get away with killing Theopolis and also get her hands on the body of Chesterton in order to collect the bounty, and so it is ultimately kind of a happy ending in the sense that this small business owner was uh, able to overcome the greedy debt collector. I think that's kind of the moral uh, center of this uh, of the story here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That was a great plot synopsis, Glenn. I don't know if I could have done done half a, half a decent job as you just did. Yeah, there, there's all this stuff with the secret identities and then she frames Theopolis for being the white fox and finds his lair and all this stuff. And then she's like, I got to change my identity and who am I going to work with? you know, for these bounties and, you know, maybe her getting silver. There's a lot of problems that are created by the death of Theopolis, but not as many problems as him alive would continue to cause her. That's certainly not a moral justification for <laughs> killing somebody, uh, but it kind of is in this story. So yeah, that's, that's the story. Right. Well, it's got sequel potential, right? The body of, of Theopolis there. If this were a TV show and this had just been, you know, the, the sort of 10 episode uh, arc of season one, it's a prestige TV show, obviously, uh, we would leave feeling pretty happy and like things are wrapped up. But then season two or maybe season three would end up having to be about, you know, the, someone else's investigation into what happened to Theopolis and and having to deal with that as as well. Though, as far as I know, Sanderson has not written that spinoff yet or that sequel yet. No, I, I know he's mentioned interest in returning to this world, but he has not yet, uh, which is fine. This story really works for this collection, I think. 
Yeah, I, I think so as well. And I, I'm looking forward to digging into this uh, into this story, talking about some some themes, motifs, and the, the writing craft. But I just want to riff a little bit on some of the things that jumped out to me here, uh, you know, before we get into that. And something that that puzzled me here, Brandon, and that maybe didn't really work very well for me were the the names here. As I, I said in, or as, as I said earlier, all of the names are. English, or at least names that uh, in some cases are not English, but are are regarded as English, right? Like Anne is actually Hebrew, but like, you know, we think of that as being an Anglo uh, name for somebody for sure. All of the names are English and it has this very sort of New England feel to it that seems to be a big part of the world building with the real big exception. There's one other exception, but the real big exception of Theopolis, which is a Greek name. And it's not like just an innocuous Greek name. It's a Greek name. I mean, all names mean something. They're all words that mean something. But this is a name that like even people who don't know Greek can suss out. They know what this means, right? That the villain of this story's name is City of God. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of problems with Theopolis in my story as well. His name is not one that I thought about at all. I just kind of <laughs> took took all the names here as uh, as written without thinking too much about them. But yeah, I am now that I think about it, really interested in the in the choice that Sanderson made in giving these. You know, you said New England, but really, what you mean, I think, is, is Puritan uh, style namings of of children, like you know. There's Chesterton Divide and Silence, whatever her last name is, and then William Ann, kind of named for the father. Um, just, just these weird names that have kind of more generic noun meanings. Uh, yeah, this is the very puritanical, I think. And then Theopolis, City of God, who was the villain. I'm not really sure what to to make of that at all. I mean, what what bothered me about Theopolis is he he's a very wealthy businessman. The inn is failing, and yet he seems to want to buy it, uh, which doesn't seem like a good investment to me. And and I and then I'm not sure why he's so interested in taunting this extremely dangerous killer of killers at the same time. You know, there's a hint that some of this is, stuff has to do with politics, but apart from his name, his character motivation is 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 questionable to me too. Yeah, it's not at all clear that he's looked at the books. In fact, it seems to be pretty clear he hasn't. So what actually his motive is, like what are his plans for the inn is actually, I think, a really fantastic question. I mean, maybe he's envisioning really like expanding the bounty hunting business. Like he's going to actually assemble the superhero team and they're going to be really efficient. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going to get one person every night and that's going to be the profit. Though I think you would you would quickly be out of business because people would stop fleeing to the forest, right, if you if you did that. So so I don't know how, how well... Uh, uh, that can work, how good of a business model that is. But that would be my solution there. But yeah, I guess really for me, my issue with this in terms of world building is that now I'm wondering why there's Greek in this world, right? Like that's like, where does this <laughs> name that doesn't jive with the, is clearly just, where does this name that is clearly not in the same language as everyone else, where does that name come from? What is the homeland like? That's all I can think about for like five pages after this character is introduced. So so that was just something that, that jumped out to me here that probably, well, it didn't affect you, Brandon, and probably did not affect most people. Right. I mean, this this world feels, I don't want to say underbaked because that's not true. There's very clear ideas that are explored in this world. But one thing that's not, that Sanderson kind of hasn't done is talk about what the rest of this world is like. And so are we supposed to get the sense that Theopolis is a foreigner, kind of a, uh, I don't know, a merchant who is preying on this land in some way and kind of using, I don't know, ugly immigrant stereotypes or 
does he just think city of God is a cool name for somebody to, for a villain, you know, and, and that, you know, that's something that, that you kind of encounter a lot in Brandon Sanderson stories, uh, in my opinion, which is something, you know, that, that weird part of my brain, that <laughs> the, the itch that's that Sanderson scratches, which is, uh, is this just a cool idea or is this something he's really thought about? And, and you kind of sometimes have to work to parse out just what he's doing, uh, with regards to, to that sort of thing. Well, yeah, that's really one of the things I want to think about in our, our themes and motifs segment as we, we slide into that is all of the, the religion stuff, the God stuff that is here in this story. It's not very developed in the story as a, as a theme at all, but it is definitely a motif in that there is a religion here that does seem to really matter to a lot of people. It's very important to William Ann, who is always invoking God beyond here. Uh, silence, though, seems to be a kind of atheist or, or at least a, a, a grumpy agnostic at, at the very least. And this actually is some provides some tension between William Ann and her mother, Silence, and also seems to have been a source of some tension between Silence and her grandmother who who raised her. So that's a big thing that's happening here in this story. And so it's hard not to think that uh, a character with the name City of God as the villain has some kind of meaning. But I really couldn't figure out a way to make that work, in part because we just don't get a lot of material. Like there's certainly no, you know, theology here or even any kind of like sense of, of, of scripture or historicity to their religion. We don't know if there's any even structure to that religion. We don't know anything about any kind of priests or anything. But the the only thing I was, the only thing I could really come up with here, not knowing anything at all about Brandon Sanderson's own religious inclinations or background or anything like that, is that when he's got a character named City of God here, that he's really thinking about the the famous work by Augustine, right? Called City of God. And that maybe, I don't know, he's he's got some beef with something that Augustine says in the thousand pages that make up the City of God. But maybe you had a better sense of that, Brandon. Well, I don't think we need to talk about Brandon Sanderson's religion here. He teaches at BYU, Brigham Young University. Um, a bunch of his lectures are online. Uh, I don't know how much Mormonism informs his writing. I think it certainly informs his sense of theology. And I don't know. I just don't know more than that. Uh, certainly his books are full of people as I've encountered them who struggle with the idea of a just God. That is a theme I've seen in a lot of Brandon Sanderson books, like the problem of theodicy. Like, why is there bad in the world? Like, why do people suffer if God is good? Uh, that is something I think Brandon Sanderson is, is interested in as a writer. Um, but he hasn't written, you know, like a, a text or a pamphlet on that. So uh, you kind of pick up snippets here and there. But certainly there are cosmologies in um, all of Brandon Sanderson's works. The Cosmere is, in a sense, uh, you know, a universe where there are lots of different planets, but there is this God that is the ultimate. And then there are all these superpowers and things like that as well. In this story, there is a shrine to the God beyond that is uh owned or maintained or has been maintained by the grandmother. And my sense was that that is where she's locked up. Like the grandmother died. She became a shade and silence has put the grandmother in the shrine of the God beyond and keeps her there. Um, William Ann is very interested in something that jumped out to me in regards to 
the theology of this story, which is why doesn't silence worship? And this is, I think, where we're experiencing the cognitive dissonance with the religion in this story is what does Brandon Sanderson mean by worship here? Are there rituals you do in front of the shrine? If the grandmother is locked up in the shrine, which she may not be, I could have misread that. Then how does William Ann worship? Like, is there a church? Things like that. It just, our sense of what a Christian religion might be or a a practicing religion that requires worship uh, is a little bit underdeveloped, as we've said a couple times here in this story. And so to spend a lot of time, which there's a long conversation between William Mann and Silence in the story about Silence's religious beliefs, I think it would have benefited this story to have a little more clarity around a little some of the rites and rituals around uh, the religious practices, because they certainly don't stop ghosts from being present. So like the afterlife is present on this planet in some sense. Uh, so it's very strange. And again, it's one of those things where uh, does Brandon Sanderson just like these kind of cool ideas or has he thought through like a full system of what he's doing? And you kind of have to, you, you have to work with the text in a sense, uh, or maybe not work with it as it, as it goes uh, <laughs> to get the, the full picture. But yeah, the, the sense of religion here, the God beyond silences, beliefs and why they matter to William Mann, what William Mann means by worship, uh, very difficult to parse out in this text. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff I want to suss out with what you, from what you just said, Brandon. Uh, First of all, I think you're absolutely right that the shade of the grandmother is there in that shrine. I think that's, I don't, do not think you have misread that. Uh, Thinking about Brandon Sanderson as a, as a Mormon is, is maybe really interesting in that one of the theological disputes that, that Mormons would have actually with Augustine, or at least uh, a strand of, of of thinking that derives from Augustine is the belief that many other Christian sects have or, or have had in the past about predestination and particularly Calvinist Christians, right? That they were drawing on, uh, that Calvinists have drawn on Augustine to support this idea that, that God already knows what is going to happen to each of us in the afterlife? Who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven? And that is something that Mormons, I think, disagree with uh, pretty strongly. And if we're tracing that back to Augustine, maybe that is why you, you you name the villain of this story after one of Augustine's books, his most famous book. Maybe that's a reading there. I don't know that there's. I don't know that that's really supported here in the text. But uh, that would be something fun to, to to think about and to talk about with listeners on the the forum. One other thing to to say too about the the names here that I hadn't really thought about. I, I did mention that Anne is a Hebrew name, even though you know we tend to think of it as being a perfectly fine Anglo name. It is Hebrew, and it means grace, which is also really important as a concept to Christian theology. And it's also really important, actually, to, to Augustine, and is, in fact, wrapped up in the question of, is there predestination, or do we have free will? So maybe he's doing something there, or at least hinting at something there, playing around, having a little fun for himself, if not necessarily trying to convey something to us, the the readers. Well, we should be clear to point out here as well that, hey, hell is in the title of this story, and hell is where they are. They're in the forests of, of hell. So in some sense, this setting is actually the the afterlife. Uh, I, I, again, I don't really quite know what to do with that, but you know, if we're talking about religion in this story, let's make sure we point out that it's even there in the, the title of the story. Well, Brandon, was there something, uh, you know, a sort of theme or a motif that jumped out to you in this story? 
One motif that really jumped out to me is kind of, uh, I don't know, two sides of the same coin, perhaps. Uh, the relationship between mothers or, you know, matriarchal stand-ins, perhaps, and daughters, and how that's tied up with the importance of passing down familial traditions. And we see in this novella that the primary relationship that's explored is between Silence and William Anne. Silence does not want William Ann to turn out like her, but it's unavoidable because of the way that this family lives and their reliance on tradition in order to remain safe. Silence deeply resents her upbringing by her grandmother. You know, and we don't learn much about Silence's mother in the story. So, you know, the assumption is that she's dead. Uh, Silence also takes in Sabruki as an orphan and is trying to do the best she can with her. So, what Silence wants to exemplify for this. Uh, the next generation are maybe the more traditional maternal values, like being nurturing and caring, but she's a killer and can't avoid passing on kind of the unspoken traditional values that have been passed on to her by her grandmother. And that's a real torment to her. That's a real character conflict. We also see that her father, grandfather, and husband are all out of the picture. Men are not a force for good in this relationship and male relationships with women even by the way this story ends with uh, William Ann's condition, are really out of the question for Silence and her family uh, at this point. So even though in the frame story, which we haven't talked about, there is like, uh, you know, one of the man characters in the end wants to marry Silence because he likes that he gives her extra meat and stuff. <laughs> um, there, there is a, a real emphasis placed on maternal values and familial traditions, especially as passed down through the maternal line in this story. And again, this is a motif. It's not a developed theme. It's just a repeated image in the story. Well, and something else that we didn't really talk about here is Shabruki's role in the resolution to the plot, which is that in the the one real scene that we get with her when she's uh, cleaning out the the pigsty that doesn't need to be cleaned out, but just because this is what she does to uh, to avoid her trauma, essentially, there she shoots a crossbow <laughs> bolt, sort of accidentally a, a silver tipped crossbow bolt that uh, actually it turns out, though no one realized it at the time, it landed in the office essentially. And so it's there when Theopolis confronts silence. And so you can really even see here where Sanderson is very shrewdly. And Sanderson is a very shrewd storyteller for sure. But he is very shrewdly setting up the the bones of uh, of a potential sequel to this story or a way to take this story uh, you know into the future by showing how you know it's not just William Ann who's gone out on this adventure and is trying to learn the business so that she can take it over from silence at some point you know help silence for a long time and then take it over eventually but that Sabruki too is clearly going to have some role in that, or at least that that's hinted at here, right? That she uh, she's learning, she's interested in learning how to use the crossbow. She's got some luck. Uh, she's got a strong character trait, and so this, in some sense, could really be billed as the story of you know many generations of women, uh, women superheroes, right? <laughs> Being serving as bounty hunters, uh, fighting criminals and fighting crime in this forest that is lousy with ghosts, because it might actually literally be be hell. And that's actually a really great idea for like a whole series of stories. It really is. And and you, you use the word shrewd to describe 
Brandon Sanderson, I, I, I use the word clever. They mean roughly the same thing, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, for me, Brandon Sanderson, one of his real strengths as a writer is his uh, kind of cleverness with plot mechanics, with world building. He, t- I would describe him almost exclusively as being a, a clever man. Very clever. Right. Well, let, let's talk about the, the craft here. And uh, we're going to break the craft discussion into sort of two sections. This is what we always do. Uh, we'll talk about storytelling, which is sort of the big picture stuff, the structure and uh, the the plot and the characters. And then we'll talk about the the, the prose, really, sort of the sentence level wordsmithing, right? Uh, but we'll start with the storytelling. And since we're already talking about the way that Sanderson has kind of maybe conceived of the idea for the story and even set it up to be something to turn into, to transform into something that is bigger than this one single novella. Uh, I want to spend a little time thinking about the fantasy tropes that Sanderson plays with here, how he sort of subverts them. Because there's, I think, a lot of fun that he's having in this story. And you brought one of them up already, Brandon, which we didn't, we just didn't do in the recap, which is that, uh, well, one, we begin in an end, right? That's pretty obvious. But the story actually starts <laughs> with a prologue. And so we have a totally different point of view character at the beginning of the story. This is very standard epic fantasy novel fare here, right? To have a prologue that has a character who we're not really going to see again, or if we do, it will only be an epilogue, which is also what we get here in this story. And this person's not going to matter in the middle. So we get this prologue with this customer at the inn giving us a lot of the immediate world building. So that's a trope that he's playing with immediately. And this customer's name is is uh, Dagon, uh, which clearly has to be a play on Dagon from H.P. Lovecraft. But he's a point of view character. And he's thinking about silence as she brings him his food. As you mentioned, Brandon, right, that he's thinking he'd like to marry her. But from his perspective or from the perspective of this prologue, that's all she is. She's just the person who runs the inn and is bringing him the food. We don't think that it's going to turn out that she's actually the protagonist of this story. It's a cool surprise, and it's a really great subversion of the the trope here. I really loved it. Yeah, if this story were not in a collection called Dangerous Women, I'd have no reason to believe in the first couple pages that uh, Silence was going to be the main character of the story. But hey, since it is and she's the first woman that shows up and <laughs> because there's certain economies of storytelling that need to take place in an anthology, uh, you know, I was on to Sanderson right away. Uh, but that's all metafictional sort of stuff, metatextual, uh, you know, inferences the other trope that really jumped out to me, though there are a lot, I think, that Sanderson is playing with here. The other trope that really jumped out to me is also, you know, wrapped up in the inn, which is that that the idea of the the fantasy inn is that this is the place where you know your adventure party is going to get together. Maybe intentionally, you've all met there to rendezvous to go start your adventure, or maybe you're all individuals or much smaller groups, and you're going to get together because of some inciting incident at the inn. Right? This is a, is a huge trope in fantasy storytelling. This is a massive of trope in you know, D&D and in role-playing games, of course. And we get that here, right, where we notice uh, some travelers who are kind of conspicuous. Uh, they don't look prepared for what they're doing and so on. And so we sort of, and so we're, we're tricked a little bit into thinking that like maybe they're, you know, the adventure party or something like that. But of course, right, it turns out that that's actually Chesterton and his gang, that they're going to be the antagonists of the story. Uh, but then again, I think Sanderson is really having a lot of fun here and being very clever and playing with these tropes when he immediately pulls the rug out of that when like the next 
beat in the plot is just uh, Silence and William Ann show up and take care of business with no obstacles, right? Which is a great way also, I think, to pull the rug out from from that trope. It's just really having a lot of fun with these tropes. It's an expertly crafted story, I think. It really is. I've been listening to some of Brandon Sanderson's lectures. They're all on YouTube um, uh, His for his writing classes. And there is no doubt that he is extremely aware of the tropes of the genre and exactly how he wants to subvert them and when. He knows how to add wrinkles to stories to continue to propel the action. And uh, it's what you might call like game-changing events where the action that you're initially interested in the initial obstacle is closed, but the way that it's closed opens up new conflicts for the characters. And Sanderson is an absolute master of this. I mean, it's how he has been able to not only become, as you said, Glenn, one of the most prolific fantasy writers of our time, but convincingly sell both to the public and to his publishers an idea that he can write a 10 book epic fantasy series and that's not going to be an issue. You know, it's it's his skill at this, this sort of pulling the rug out uh, from the reader's expectations, closing conflict, but opening up new conflict that allows him to convincingly or to be believed convincingly that he's going to be able to really pull off, you know, the 10 book series, but also you can see how he's able to sell a 50 page uh, short story that it, it first seems generic, but we're constantly changing the stakes and the scope of the action. And uh, it's, a, it's a magnificent skill that he has there. There is in the writing community uh, a, a dichotomy between writers who are uh, are pantsers and writers who are plotters. And basically, what this means if you, is if you're a plotter, you are someone who has like a really solid outline of the plot of your story before you sit down to write it. And pantser is a just a term for people who fly by the seat of their pants, right? Who essentially are making it up as they go along. Which maybe another way to put that is just to say that when they get into writing, the plot, the the story, is not actually their their entry into starting to write. Maybe they've got an idea for a setting or uh, a, a theme or a motif they want to work with, or if it's science fiction, you know, maybe it's a bit of technology that you want to, to think about and, you know, how that technological and how that technological change might affect us, but you don't really necessarily know what the plot is going to be that you're going to use to explore that and so on. And I wonder, Brandon, if you have a sense here <laughs> where Brandon Sanderson might fall on that spectrum between, you know, hardcore pantser and hardcore plotter. Uh, he is explicitly a plotter, yeah. but any good writer knows that that's only going to get you so far. So he, you know, he has talked about in some of his lectures, how he's plotted out books or a series of books and then had to go back and rewrite half of it. Uh, because he, as he was exploring the outline in the actual practice of writing, he came across better ideas. So he's an advocate, I think, for starting with an outline, especially for beginner writers, but then being open to how your writing speaks to you as the author, which is a strange dichotomy. But I mean, there's a reason why there's a, you know, the idea of muses and things like that exists in, <laughs> in, in the artistic world that you have to be open to the way the story shapes itself and changes it as you write it. But he knows the beats he wants to hit, I think, as, as a writer. 
Yeah, that was 100% my sense of this as well. And and I really marvel at that. I definitely am not a plotter in writing and I'm not interested in that either. That is not what I, uh, you know, I'm taking myself to the keyboard for. That's it's not the thing I'm interested in when I'm amusing myself by writing a story. And so it's it's not an approach that I've ever even really tried. Like the idea of knowing what the plot of my story is before I start writing it or even, you know, like as I'm getting close to finishing the story, frankly, uh, most of the time. But I really and admire the way that Sanderson is clearly able to do this, where he had an outline, he knew what the beats were, he knew what the transition moments between Act 1 and Act Act 2 and Act 2 and Act 3 were going to be. It's an approach to storytelling in which, you know, the act of writing, the actual sitting down at the the keyboard and banging out the story is a kind of filling in the blanks rather than actually is the moment of of, of discovery and and world building. That's all stuff that he's done as he's been developing the the plot, uh, you know, with whatever sort of means he does that. Maybe it's a notebook at a coffee shop. Maybe it's uh, zillions of, uh, of, uh, of Word documents or so on. And I really just marvel at his ability to do something like this. It's incredibly impressive to me. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, he certainly carries a lot around in his head and probably on lots of spreadsheets and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've started using a a writing program called Scrivener. And one thing is I kind of developed my own craft. One thing that I appreciate about that program, there's a lot to appreciate about it. It's a very good writing program, is uh, that you can kind of bring the drafts up next to each other and then write notes on each draft in like a separate column on the screen. And that's helped me kind of keep track of characters as I'm an extremely slow writer and return to stories sometimes, uh, you know, a month after I wrote the last sentence that I wrote in them to kind of help keep track of what I was doing with the character and what's going on. But I get the sense that he just does that all in advance. I'm certainly more of a discovery writer, though I have a sense of what elements of the story I want to put into it or like what the setting is, things like that. Um, I, I often let the story speak much more to me, though. Maybe that makes me a slow writer and maybe that's why I'm not a pro. <laughs> <laughs> well, this story just felt so effortless and maybe that's part of what I'm marveling at here. I mean, this is it's 50 pages in this book, so that's got to be somewhere between 15 and 20,000 words. And you know, I've written novellas that length as as well. I'm quite happy and proud of of some of them, at least. Those are things that take me two to two and a half months to write. But although I am also, to be clear, not a full time writer, I don't get to do that full time. Sanderson does, but this just feels to me like he wrote this in a weekend, and that it came out really polished. It just has this effortless feel to it that's just awesome. Yeah, there's no sense that he struggled with anything in the writing of this story, though. I mean, of course, that could just be because he's very he's very efficient as a writer but you don't get the sense that he got stuck anywhere in the composition of of writing this story i i agree completely well let, let let's turn our attention to you know the sort of bones of the the story, the insides of the story, the tissue perhaps is maybe the better metaphor. I'm not sure why I'm getting this grotesque with the metaphors, though it is a story about, you know, murder. So maybe maybe that's all right. But let's 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 turn to the word smithing here. And I part of my interest in reading Brandon Sanderson, part of the reason I wanted to 
start this whole podcast <laughs> as a means of getting someone to to have me go read some Brandon Sanderson is that he seems to be a pretty polarizing author on the the internet, which you know is a place where polarizing where polarization is sort of mandatory. But on Twitter and and Reddit, people either seem to really love Brandon Sanderson or really hate Brandon Sanderson or you know his writing, of course, not him as a, a person. I mean, uh, but one of the claims that I see leveled uh, against Brandon Sanderson a lot is that his prose is workmanlike, uh, sometimes workmanlike at best. But I actually quite enjoyed the prose here. Yeah, I do not go to Brandon Sanderson for prose, so I'm not going to explicitly disagree with you here. Um, I continually read Brandon Sanderson and return to his work, uh, but I do not think he is a good prose stylist. I agree with you. I mean, this is not like majestic, beautiful prose. This isn't Proust. It's not John Crowley. It's not Gene Wolfe. That is for sure. Right. But I guess, you know, as, as someone who has made a living taking a red pen to student papers, I, the, the, the level of vitriol about his writing style, his prose style on the internet had me believing that I was going to need to be putting commas in the right places here. And there just was none of that. It is, no. it's a, it's, it is a style that's not dense. It's not rich, but it is, it's highly accessible. It flows very well. And it foregrounds, right? The, the story, it foregrounds these plots and the, the story structures, which is, I think, what people are going to him for. And, I, you know, it's really well done, I think. Yeah, it's not fair, I think, to even call him workmanlike or even like scorn workmanlike style writing. Workmanlike is is a phrase used when you can't maybe figure out the style of the prose or something like that. This prose is highly stylized. It just might not be to everybody's taste. But I don't think Brandon Sanderson is known for his prose. He's known for his world building and his characters and things like that. Uh, The settings, the rules of the game that he's playing. So I, you know, I, I, I don't get it either. It really drives me nuts when, when people online just scorn a writer or the poor scorn on a writer because they don't like the style of his prose. Just, Make a real aesthetic argument if you want to make one, but you're also the one who just read the whole book. So just chill out, you know, like, (laughs) you know, it's okay to not enjoy the style of the prose. Find something else to enjoy. You clearly kept turning the pages. You know what I mean? It just that that's something that really drives me nuts. I don't love Brandon Brandon Sanderson's style of prose, but I recognize it is his style. Um, I mean, I can read a passage here from this story that demonstrates something uh, that just doesn't work for me on a stylistic level, but I'm not upset about it. Here's a paragraph that kind of, to me, exemplifies his style. It's not workmanlike. It is a style. So this is what it, the paragraph is. A silence closed her eyes, holding Sabruki tight. She herself had been the only one willing to investigate the smoking homestead. Sabruki's father had stayed at the way stop on occasion. A good man. As good a man as was left after the evil took homeland, that was. And it's just these kind of inverted clauses, the repetition, the kind of cutting up of sentences, the uh, phrases as sentences. These are all choices meant to evoke the mindset of the person who's thinking these things, even though this is a third person story. This just doesn't reflect how my own internal monologue works. So it's very difficult for me to connect to the prose in that way. But I recognize that is because of my huge differences in internal monologuing than the way Brandon Sanderson is representing it here. Uh, so that that's really what it comes down to. But 
it's a style and it's a choice and he's successful at it. And I don't begrudge him that at all. There And of course, there are other ways that a writer, another writer or Sanderson himself could have chosen to write that paragraph, to write that scene, right? To, to give us the emotional uh, connection between the two characters and then to give us this backstory that we need that, that tells us why there's this connection. And is also, of course, leading into the whole moral justification for it was murdering people by hammering their brains out inside a sack at night in a forest. Uh, all of that is necessary here. This is a, a choice that Sanderson has made to tell us that, to show us that in the mind of the character, rather than from an outside uh, external perspective in a third person voice or you know going the other way and giving this to us as an as an italicized actual internal monologue which is always the wrong choice just just to be clear that's the free writing <laughs> advice there that is always the wrong choice right but sanderson clearly has made a choice here there is a style to this for sure exactly and so and and it's not workmanlike i mean if you want a workmanlike style prose open up to the middle of a of a Stephen King novel and read a general paragraph that's description. I mean, that is getting through the stuff that he needs to get through to continue the the horror and the the character stuff and and all of the things that Stephen King is really well known for. That workmanlike style prose is often leveled at him as well. And clearly it's not something that the general population struggles with or has a problem with in terms of taste. Right. Well, and Stephen King's whole oeuvre is that he's writing supernatural horror. And, and of course, he's branched off into lots of other things. But his whole oeuvre is that he's writing uh, gothic tales, let's say, but writing them about and for working class people. So, yeah, please do have a workman like style when you're when you're doing that. Right. Because <laughs> like, that goes with the whole motif of what you're doing. Uh, so, you know, it, yeah, that's kind of a, a charge leveled against Stephen King that I don't I don't think really sticks or at least means means what the, the levelers of that charge want it to mean. I, I've got a passage here that I, I want to share that I think also is, is fairly stylized. And it is actually a descriptive passage that is just kind of, you know, the kind of paragraph that is the glue of the story, the sort of uh, thing you were just. Uh, imagining, you know, in a sort of Stephen King book as well. And here's here's what this paragraph uh, is, this descriptive paragraph. No road in the forests was well maintained. Perhaps if the forts ever made good on their promises, that would change. Still, there was travel. Homesteaders traveling to one fort or another to trade food. The grains grown out in forest clearings were richer, tastier than what could be produced up in the mountains. Rabbits and turkeys caught in snares or raised in hutches could be sold for good silver. Not hogs. Only someone in one of the forts would be so crass as to eat a pig. And so, again, right, like this here is inside the the, the mind of a character, right? It's not an omniscient uh, or detached third-person narrative. It is inside the mind of a character, but not a sort of italicized internal like monologue there. But then there's also just, I think, some really nice world-building here, right? This bit about the pig is a, a nice touch that doesn't really mean anything, but yet still brings this world to life. It makes it more vivid. So to me, this is really good storytelling here with accessible prose that allows people to turn the pages quickly here to get on with like the story that they're here for and, and to spend time with the characters that they're here for. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I have one more passage uh, that I actually like, even though I think it's hilarious. I mean, I like it for maybe the wrong reasons. But, you know, there's another passage in this story that is a, is a character description, another descriptive passage that I just 
it's it's incredible. So uh, I'm going to read it. This is from the opening page of the story in the frame story or the prologue and epilogue, as you probably more rightly called it. Uh, and and this is a, a description of a character. So Sanderson writes this. Dagon's drinking companion had a neck like a slender wine bottle and a head like a potato stuck sideways on top. He squeaked as he spoke. A last poor accent. Voice echoing in the eaves of the Waystop's common room. Ernest leaned back, scrunching down that fishing pole neck as if trying to disappear into his beer. And I just, you know, there's so much absurdity in this character description here. (laughs) It's hard to imagine this is a person, but it's evocative. It is funny. It is light. It brings us into the common room of this way stop. And it's a, it's just, it's, it's fun. You know, it, it kind of sets a, a sort of absurd, but dark tone for the story. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed that passage, even though it's as stylized and, and mad as anything else you'll find in this text. Yeah, I really like that passage as well. In fact, it was one that I had, uh, I had stuck a sticky uh, note on it as one that I might want to want to bring to this section of the outline. So I'm glad I thought, I'm glad I thought differently there. Well, let's, uh, we, I think we've already been doing a bit of, of assessing of this story in part, at least because that's the mindset that I went to it with. But let's move definitively into the the strengths and weaknesses section of the outline here. And as always, I like to end on a high note, on a good note. So we'll we'll do the strengths last. Let's start with some weaknesses. So Brandon, what what do you think is the one big weakness that this story has? You could call it a problem with like my musical ear or ear for dialogue, something along like those lines. The the dialogue is to me a real weakness of the story. And by weakness here, it's something that takes me out of the story. It's really difficult for me to imagine a world where people with the level of relationships that that are told that we that they have in the story speak to they 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 speak to one another in a way that doesn't communicate the way that their relationships are described. There's a lot of exposition and dialogue, and it's really hard for me to imagine how the characterization matches the dialogue. And I have an example of this. Uh, one character we haven't talked about in this story so far is the stable man. And his name is Dob. He has a long history with silence. Uh, I think we're told that he's been with her since before she gets married, or at least has a common law marriage with her husband and has William Ann. And he's described to us as a simpleton time and again, uh, you know, to the point where we might think of him as having a low IQ or just not really being able to do anything but muck the horse stalls, things like that. And he's just, you know, that's just how he's given to us. But then at the end of the story, he has this line where he reveals to Silence that he knows she's the white fox. And Silence is shocked by this revelation. But Dobbs says to her, I'm an idiot, ma'am, not a fool. And that kind of self-awareness is not idiotic. And so I'm really, I really struggle to match the characterization as given with how the characters speak to one another. And and maybe, you know, we're supposed to understand that silence has underestimated Dob or, you know, certainly she's been off her game lately in the story, but Dob has been with her for a long time. So she's un- if she's underestimated him this much for years and years, then that's a major flaw in her character as well in being able to der- do her job in dealing with these dangerous men and like petty men like Theopolis. So things like that really draw me out of the story uh, and and uh, so that's a weakness in, in my book. 
I actually really enjoyed that that line, though I think you you, you point to some some places where it's sort of a, a world building flaw there. Though you know I, that just makes me wonder what actually is meant by the term idiot in this in in this world. It clearly does not mean someone who is stupid. That seems to be what foolish means or fool means. And he's saying he's definitely not that. So my, my implicit understanding of that actually simply was that the word idiot here meant uneducated or possibly illiterate, right? Because we do see that this is a literate society with, with books uh, that silence and at least William Ann can, can read for sure, which would actually be a little bit strange for uh, the, the type of historical society that, that, Sanderson has in mind as his his model for this fantasy world that he's building here. So, um, yeah, I just took it to mean that he was uneducated, and that's why he's working the the stables and uh, and is actually explicitly saying uh, being illiterate, being uneducated doesn't mean I'm actually stupid. Hey, that's fair. I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's that was an example of of, uh, of of just an instance of that where the characterization, you know, especially when we spend a paragraph in the early part of the story describing Dob just simply as a as a as a simpleton uh, that that it just didn't match to do that much work to make a line of dialogue make sense. It just takes me out of the story. Well, I think that that is a fair criticism there, that it's a joke that we didn't need, and it, it definitely could have been cut. But, you know, I don't think Brandon Sanderson needs to make cuts for word count that frequently, even <laughs> even when he's getting published in, in an anthology. So <laughs> I think he's he could do what he wants with that. But yeah, I had, I had two technical writing bits that also drew me out of this story, though I will say that each of the things I'm about to complain about is really standard operating procedure for high fantasy writing. I will... Start with the minor one first. It's just really more of a pet peeve than anything else. And that is active participles in dialogue tags. And we get one in the first sentence of the story, uh, which is not good. You do not want to kick your reader out of the story with the first sentence, but that is definitely what happened to me in this story. And here's what that sentence is. The one you have to watch for is the white fox, Dagon said, sipping his beer. And here's the thing about active participles. And, and just, you know, for people who aren't grammar nerds, sipping is the active participle there. So it is something that is happening um, actively. It's a, it's a present, it's an active present participle here. And this is, a, and this is a type of dialogue tagging that everyone <laughs> in high fantasy does. So instead of doing something like Dagon sipped his beer and then just give us the line of dialogue or give us the line of dialogue and then say Dagon sipped his beer, what you're actually telling us is that while Dagon is saying this line, he is also sipping his beer. And just think about that for a minute. Sip your beer and uh, or anything, whatever you've got in front of you, and try to say this. But maybe, you know, don't wear a good shirt while you're doing it, right? So, like, this is not even, <laughs> it's just not technically possible. This is not actually describing the scene, right? With So the grammar here is poor, and this is, but this is, this is everywhere in this type of fantasy writing. This is not Sanderson's fault. It's not Sanderson alone, but the fact that it was the first sentence of the story really jumped out to me. Certainly, I can see how you think that's a weakness in, in the text. You said you had two, though. I, I did. That was really more just me wanting to air some grievances about my pet peeve in all all writing anywhere. That was Glenn with his red pen out, I will say, <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> but uh, the, 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 real, the real weakness that I, I had here was this one moment where the, the subtle POV changes in the, the middle of a scene. This actually happens in a few different places in the story, but I'll just point out one. And this is uh, when we are in Silence's mind, as she, she's more or less giving us the backstory about Chesterton. This is actually uh, very adjacent to the uh, the paragraph that you, uh, you you read earlier, Brandon. 
we're in her mind. She's thinking about this backstory, you know, which is allowing us, the readers, to get access to it. And she's thinking about it from her perspective, right? What was the story as she saw it? Because that's how, all she can know, right? But then suddenly she is relaying information to us, uh, information about what Chesterton was thinking in the past, which she couldn't possibly know. So it's really, so this paragraph then becomes a real nesting doll of point of views that really doesn't make any sense and, and totally sucks me out of the, the story, essentially. But High Fantasy does this all the time because of how much world building and backstory has to be present. It is a, a, a technical problem, I guess, right? Like, how do I give my readers this information and also maintain the the narrative point of view? And Sanderson, I think, just painted himself or, you know, I don't know why I'm using a metaphor there. He wrote himself into a corner here. And and maybe most people don't notice this sort of thing, but it really did just boot me out of the story because I immediately had to wonder, okay, but how does she know this? Because I thought that actually was going to be a plot point that we were going to learn how she knows what was going on in Chesterton's mind uh, years ago when he committed this atrocity. But she doesn't. It's not a plot point. It's, it's just sloppy writing. Uh, yeah. Basically, when this sort of thing happens, I just imagined every every character who's able to make these sort of leaps of logic is just Sherlock Holmes, right? They're just really good <laughs> at inductive reasoning. They can understand people, and it's just sort of this this trope. Um, and so, yeah, you 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 pick up on this here, but I've read too many fantasy novels that I just don't blink at it anymore. I'm like, okay, they're Sherlock Holmes too. That's fine. Right. And to be fair, uh, these are real technical gripes here that when you're just turning pages because you're really into the story, as I was, I really was into this story and was turning pages. These aren't real problems. These are not obstacles to the enjoyment of the the story at all, even when they did cause me a little bit of, of, you know, agony about what was going on, where I was had an expectation because of the grammatical choice here or flaw here, perhaps. Uh, and that was not met, it didn't really matter, right? This is still entertaining uh, writing here. And he's, and I think it's important actually that he's telling the story from this, this close point of view, which uh, I'll get to in a minute when we talk strengths, but I want to let you have first crack at strengths here, Brandon. Well, it's the setting in the world building. And I, you know, but I do not think there's a single person who can say that Sanderson's ability to build settings and to do world building are, anything less than pristine and excellent. And sometimes that pristine nature of the world building is, is a problem for me as well. But, uh, you know, his worlds are you know, just excellently thought of. And for some, you know, and for me at times, they feel like they're set up like video game worlds and levels. Uh, there's, you know, instances in the story, Glenn, you brought this up. There's visual cues to pay attention to for when you draw a mob of bad guys that you have to fight. This is the eyes, the shades eyes turning colors, but they're very consistent uh, worlds that Sanderson creates. And he's done this like here, this kind of science-like rules that are presented as lore. There's limits to the world that these people participate in, like invisible walls and video games. And it's really a game that's set up for like how a game is meant to be played. And one thing I love about Sanderson's writing is that his protagonists are playing in these really consistent worlds. And when you're in that perspective of that character, you feel like you're playing a game, but there's more richness because it's it's the character that you really like. So I really appreciate, deeply appreciate his skill as a world builder and where he comes 
and how he approaches world building in his stories. He builds worlds for his characters to play in. And uh, boy, that's a skill that is just unbelievable. And he he's the best at it. This world is super vivid. It really pops. I'm I'm going to forget actually what the story is about, like the the narrative, you know, in in a few months uh, and maybe quicker. We do a lot of podcast episodes. We read a lot here on the network, but what is going to stick with me are the images and the impressions that I have of the world. It's so vivid and and so strong. It's 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 very expertly drawn. It really is a great strength to this story. Usually I'm the one actually uh, ringing that bell of the world building and the setting because that's the thing I go to speculative fiction for. But I actually was most blown away here uh, by by two things again. The first was just the the, the character pathos. The I, I found myself really caring about these characters, even though we only know them for 50 pages. I still found myself really feeling their feelings and really caring for them and really rooting for them. And I just, I marveled at that. That was really, really well done. Just wonderful characters. And I liked the emotionality with which he drew them and and wrote them and the way he showed and the way he has, you know, mother and daughter here in this, uh, this tough spot. And that we, we see how much silence, you know, cares about William and all of that really uh, impacted me, right? This was an emotional story for me and it really worked on that level. But then on the technical level as well, as I've said, I have a lot of admiration for just his his basics here, right? His fundamentals. It's just awesome. His plot fundamentals are just flawless. The story practically generates itself once you identify the inciting incident and, and the obstacle that's going to drive us from act two to act three. It's just expertly structured, expertly plotted, and I just marvel at it. I can't do this. My I do not think about stories this way, and I'm just in awe at this thing. Every time I try to do something like Sanderson does, which is, you know, what what you're describing here, what I described as kind of these game changing scenes, I just end up wrapping up the story. <laughs> you know, I simply <laughs> cannot uh, create an obstacle that once resolved leads to bigger obstacles. And and I think we all have a lot to learn from Sanderson's skill here. And you're right with relation to his characters that it's it's like what I was trying to say. It's like putting in a really great big. RPG where you don't get to design the character. Instead, you ride along with that character throughout their story in the world. And he is, it's so effective and so wonderfully done that you feel like you're, 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 you are them. You are the character for the time you are spending with Sanderson's character, uh, characters. And it's just, uh, he, he's a marvelous writer and he really, you know, we, we talked about the things that maybe are not to our taste or that jump out to us about style. Um, but yeah, you can't beat him for fundamentals, world building and, and characterization, uh, at least not right now, at least not people that are writing million word epics. Yeah, you know, I used the word vivid just a, a few minutes ago, but I think actually a better word. I'm gonna, I'm gonna red, I'm gonna red pen myself here. The better word is actually immersive. This is a totally immersive story in that video game feeling that you're describing there, and I really appreciate that about this story. It's an immersive experience that that sucks me in, even even when some of the technical features of the writing are are challenging. That immersion doesn't matter. The, the story is immersive despite those you know handful of of minor technical flaws. Yeah, I had to actually reread the story and like go through the pages to find the, the, the like the stuff to be grumpy about because it just <laughs> it, it wasn't th- on the first read. You're just not you're just not there. You're not on that level. 
unless you're an editor or something like that, you got to go back and really be like, actually, yeah, I can niggle with this a little bit and I can fight with that a little bit. But when you're just blowing through it, it doesn't matter. It's just because you're, you are immersed and, and yeah, that is the right word to describe Sanderson's writing here. Well, I think now that we have uh, settled on the, the perfect word to describe the experience of, of reading this really just phenomenal story, I think we'll we'll close out this episode here. But Brandon, thanks for coming on the show to do this extra episode with me this week, especially one where we get to put our, our writer hats on, which we, we don't do often enough, I don't think. Oh, it's my pleasure. I haven't been in a Brandon Sanderson world for, for two or three years. So this was really uh, a true pleasure for me. And I want to take a moment here to thank uh, our Patreon supporter for commissioning this episode and letting me ride along with Glenn on his solo show for, for this one. Yeah, thanks so much for the, the commission. Thanks so much, really, just for the impetus to read some Brandon Sanderson and, and to talk about him in this this focused way with with Brandon, Brandon Buddha here, I should say, right? Uh, which is something that we have dreamed about doing for for a, a long time. So it's really great to have the opportunity to do that. Well, all right. I am Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon. Those are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, maybe maybe you want me to read an entire Brandon Sanderson novel or you got something else in mind, whatever it is, you can contact us on Twitter or any of our other social media accounts, or you can email us at ClayTempleMedia at gmail.com. I would love to read a book that you love and talk about it for you. So I'll be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode on... Batman. Uh, we're going to be doing our very first mainstream superhero story on the show with the first volume of Scott Snyder's run on Batman. Uh, this volume is called The Court of Owls. I absolutely loved what Snyder did with Gotham City, and so I am super excited to talk about that at the end of the month. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.